Welcome to episode seven, Just a Gringo from Miami, with Just a Gringo and his sister, Jen, the Gringa. Now, this is a momentous episode. Actually, I think this is episode eight. This is a momentous episode because we have our first ever guest, and not just any guest. We have a locally famous and infamous guest who, against his better judgment, has agreed to be our first guest on the podcast. Now you're wondering, who could this person be? Notice how I'm milking the suspense. The suspense shall end right now. Our first guest is the one and only Tom Pennycamp. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much to my first podcast. <laughs> Are you already regretting it? Uh, yes. <laughs> Too late. Too but late. This is a perfect podcast for me as a true gringo in Miami. <laughs> oh, you are you are gringo squared. <laughs> you should be Thomas Pennycamp, comma gringo with the little two sign in the upper right hand corner. Squared, gringo squared, gringo squared. I think we just gave birth to a new nickname, gringo squared. I'm sure that license plate is available. So, however, I do speak Spanish. Uh, don't we all? Don't we all? Don't make Ron speak Spanish. It's, it's dreadful. No, my Spanish is magical because I can make people who've never spoken English in their life speak English to make me stop speaking Spanish. It's actually a, it's actually a superpower I have. <laughs> except except when talking about boats, then my my Spanish is decent. So. Tom's family's ties to Dade County might run the deepest of almost any family in Dade County, and uh, that's one of the reasons we thought he would be the perfect guest. So, with that intro, Tom, uh, fire away. That's uh, fun. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's it's a little rare these days, but you know, both my parents were born here in Miami, and both of them come from pretty interesting families. Uh, one of them is uh, John Pennycamp, who's the namesake of the John Pennycamp Coral Reef State Park. And my other grandfather, who doesn't really have a famous name, but was a pretty interesting and famous guy in his time was, and you're gonna love this name, Festus Earl Kitchens. Doc Kitchens is what he went by. And his wife, my grandmother, had an equally awful name, Regina Josephine Reichman. And she lived up to her name. Anyway, so I grew up with her. Uh, so I'll talk about my mom's grandfather. Uh, you know, he was uh, the first doctor in Coral Gables. He came down here from Michigan and he bought um, our family home from George Merrick. And George Merrick was the developer of Coral Gables, the entire Coral Gables until he went completely bankrupt. And I grew up and one of his, his concept for Coral Gables was the villages. So you've got a Chinese village, most people are familiar with that. Uh, you've got the French village, the English village, there's a little Dutch thing going on. I'm in the South African village, that's where I grew up. My mother grew up in that house and he bought it in 1926 from George Merrick when Lejeune Road was literally a dirt road. And I've got a picture of that, it's, it's pretty amazing. So lived there my whole life with my mother and my father and my grandmother. 
and uh, it's a pretty interesting place. Uh, Dr. Grandmother, she sounds like a strong woman. Uh, she was that and more, and she despised my father, and then by default didn't like me much either. And yet I had to live with her. We both lived with her her entire life. So, yeah. Well, that that's a lot to unpack. First of all, for those who don't live here, Lejeune Road might be the largest avenue in all of Dade County. It actually borders Miami International Airport. And uh, it's three lanes in each direction, plus turning lanes, plus a median, and goes... Uh, basically the entire uh, north-south quarter yeah, yeah from from the water all the way to the county line and then I think it turns into a, a another street up in Broward uh, I'm not as sure about that so that's amazing I've never and I've lived here you know since I'm almost five I've never heard of the South African uh, quarter Dutch South African village oh it's Dutch Dutch South African village um, so the, the house is near Coco Plum Circle, so it's on the very south end of Lejeune, in Coral Gables. It's about a block up from the Coco Plum Circle, and it's an entire city block of various homes. And they're, they're beautiful. I mean, they're really, you'll see uh, a lot of new developers are actually trying to emulate that architecture now in the Gables. So did you hear from your grandfather what it was like to actually uh, negotiate with George Merrick or his office? Unfortunately, I, I, he died when I was about two years old, so I don't recall him. But he, you know, as I said, I, you know, I heard the stories from my mother and my father, but, you know, he's a founding member of the Orange Bowl Committee, for example, which is a fact that I never knew. I never knew that he had anything to do with the Orange Bowl Committee until... I had become, it was asked to become a member of the Orange Bowl Committee. I went over there to pick up my Orange Bowl pin, and uh, my ex-wife is standing in the lobby with me. She walks over to a picture, she turns around and looks at me and goes, Tom, isn't that your grandfather? And it was a picture of the founding members. And I'm like, yeah, I had no idea. Now, how can I grow up in a house never knowing that? Now, now is that the grandfather with the amazing name? No, that's Doc Kitchens. Oh, that's Doc Kitchens. Yeah. What's the other grandfather's name? So my, my father's father, uh, my fraternal grandfather, was John D. Penningham. John okay. David Penningham. And, uh, you know, obviously the Park and the Keys, that's a state park, is named after him. And it really was to commemorate uh, everything he had done for Florida's uh, ecology, conservation. Can you go into those uh, efforts in the time period? Because that's really early on to be yeah, an ecologist. Uh, yeah, it is. It's before anybody really understood the concepts. Um, it started with the Everglades National Park, which he is the, really the father of that entire endeavor, uh, which is, uh, you know, at, at this point in time, we now realize publicly that without that park, Miami would not exist. We would have no water. That was all privately owned. They were draining the swamp. They were drilling for oil. And that is our aquifer. So thank God he saved it. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's a fascinating story. But anyway, by the time he finished the Everglades National Park, he became the first chairman of the state park system. And he built what today is Florida's state park system. His last project was the nation's first, if not the world's first, underwater park. And uh, they named it after him, really in recognition for everything done for South Florida. And, uh, but that's, that's, 
His, his actual job was not that. His job was he was a newspaper man and uh, was editor of the Herald, which really is the reason why he was able to do all that. Now, did your grandfather work with Marjorie Stoneman Douglas at all? He knew her well, um, and they became friends during his you know fight for the Everglades and his fight for the state park system. And you know, Marjorie was the one with the River of Grass, the book River of Grass, that brought uh, attention to what was to become the Everglades. And really, she caught the attention of James L. Knight of Knight Ritter newspapers. And my father was, when my grandfather was working at the Herald at the time, and Mr. Knight came to him and asked him to look into it. And that's how it all began. Wow. Well, this... Amazing history. Well, this, this is amazing oral history of South Florida and Dade County in particular and Monroe County. And this is one of the reasons we're doing this podcast aside from uh, Jennifer and I uh, entertaining ourselves and hopefully other people as well. And because this segment has gone so well, I'm actually going to end this segment right now. This is the backdrop segment of the Penny Camp family, uh, one of the influential and I guess the generation after the founding generation to help put Miami and uh, Pennycamp Park on the map. And when we come back, we'll discuss Tom's perceptions of how Miami has changed over the years, for better or worse, and uh, hopefully segment two will go as well. We, we are not promising anything. We'll be right back. Welcome back to episode eight, segment two, with our very first guest, the famous and infamous Tomas Tom Pennycamp, comma, Gringo Squared. Take it away again, Tom. Yeah, so uh, there's an interesting story, and, and it's, it's, as far as I know, legit, because it comes from the horse's mouth, even though it sounds like it came out of a Western. But uh, when I was younger, and my grandfather was still alive, my grandfather, John Pennycamp, who we all called Pop. Uh, while he was alive, we took a trip down to the Keys with my father, my mother, my grandfather, Pop, and myself. And I, I, I'll never forget it. We were in one of those station wagons with the wood stickers on the side where you sit facing the back and all that. Anyway, we were going down and my father had brought a cassette recorder with him and had me interview my grandfather. And the question that I gave him, I have the audio tape, which is really cool. Uh, was, you know, Pop, why is the park named after you? And, you know, it started with, well, if you really want to know, you know, I'll tell you, you know, the feigned humility. He was anything but a humble guy. But anyway, he did tell a rather amusing story because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Penny Camp Park really had its, uh, its origin in the founding of the Everglades National Park. And Pop told the story of the Everglades National Park where, and I mentioned it earlier, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas caught the attention of James L. Knight, who was his boss, came to Pop and said, well, I want you to look into this. So Pop did. Um, and the reason why he came to Pop is because he was the associate editor of the Herald. And that is a position not of money, but of raw power, raw political power. Because back then there weren't internet, uh, there wasn't an internet. They didn't have TV advertising per se. So if they, when the Herald endorsed a slate of politicians, 
They were either elected or not elected based on that endorsement. He used that raw power for our ecology, for conservation. He, he never made any money in his life. He was not a wealthy guy, but he was a wealthy guy in a lot of ways. But anyway, he tells the story that he got a hold of the governor of the state. I don't remember which one it was at the time. And he explained to the governor that he had the power to appoint an Everglades commission. The idea had been kicking around, like I said, but nobody had really figured out how they were gonna do it. So Pop got the governor to appoint some influential people around the state of Florida. And one of the people Pop had him put onto this commission, this newly formed commission, was a guy named McGregor Smith. And McGregor was the chairman of Florida Power and Light. So as you can imagine, he had a little clout too. And so McGregor invited my grandfather up to, you know, the problem's always money, right? Where are you gonna get the money to buy out the private landowners of the Everglades? Where are you gonna get started? And uh, he, so McGregor calls him and says, hey, come up to my camp on Horseshoe Lake. It sounds like somewhere up in Central Florida. And uh, come up for supper, that's what they call it. Not lunch, not dinner, supper. And he went up there and when he walked in, there was the entire pork chop gang. And this is, a, this is a saying that probably is lost these days, but the pork chop gang were the legislators in the state capitol that literally ran everything. I mean, everything. Wow. Yeah. Smoke, smoke filled rooms? Absolutely. All guys, all old guys, you know, uh, monochromatic. <laughs> and uh, they, it was just a handful of these guys. They're all from North Florida. And they literally ran the show. Everything behind closed doors. And there they are in one room. And they had supper and they sat down and they started playing the nickel and dime poker. And uh, Pop, as he put it on the tape, was he couldn't lose. And before you know it, he was up like $30. And he, you know, he described his style as, I'm a terrible loser and I'm an even worse winner. Because <laughs> I tend to, oh, what was the word he used? Exalt myself over others. <laughs> so apparently he got under their skin and they came down to the last hand. And this is all in his words. And uh, it was, Pierce was the legislator. Pierce just so happened to be the chairman of the budget committee for the Florida legislature. So they get down to this last hand, there's a big pot in there, they've drawn all their cards, and Pierce goes to lay down his cards and reach for the pile. He's got a, he's got a straight. And Pop goes, whoa, whoa, whoa there, Senator. He had, he had drawn a pair, okay, and then when he, when he uh, drew more cards, he got this, the rest of the pair. He had four of a kind. So at that point, Pierce loses his mind, looks at my grandfather and says, how much GD money do you need for that damn park of yours? And Pops just pulled the number out of his, you know, $2 million, which was a lot of money back then. And the guy goes, well, why don't you come up to the legislature, get your damn money and stop taking it out of our pockets. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I knew that was good. Oh my God, that is a great story. Yeah, that's well, out of his mouth, so it's got to have some truth to it. So, uh, if a four of a kind hadn't beat a straight, we wouldn't have beautiful John <laughs> Pennycamp Park. That may well be true. 
Or nor nor Pennycale Park for that matter. Yeah. That, that's great. And that is such a Florida story on so many levels. Um, Tom, so you're you're a prodigious boater, right? You've been boating forever and you've got amazing ties to Miami and Dade County and your family does. Uh, you have any, uh, I don't know, boating stories that might take us back, especially maybe having to do with um, Stiltsville or anything like that? Well, yeah, so we were, we were pretty lucky. Uh, my father had bought a share of a Stiltsville house uh, with some other prominent, uh, yeah, mainly lawyers. My father wasn't a lawyer. He was an insurance agent. But he insured a lot of high-profile lawyers in town. And anyway, they were his friends, and they, they bought into the Stillsville house while I was in high school. The timing was absolutely magnificent. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause you for a second. So for those of you who don't live in Miami or have not been out on the water, Stiltsville is an amazing, unique part of Miami history. I believe it's been around since, what, the 20s or 20s. the 30s? The 20s. Yeah, during Prohibition, yeah. And uh, it, it came to light during Prohibition, and um, at some point, there must have been about, what, about 30, 30 of them? I think there were about 19 at one point. 19. And there's eight or so left. Right. Hurricane Andrew really did the others in, and uh, the Park Service is very strict about building new ones. So you have, like, the original eight or nine left, and it's just this unique little cluster of very different above water houses that are on stilts and that's why it's called stiltsville to your first stiltsville experience your sister yes jennifer did after all those years of driving by stiltsville uh my sister did get me to the miami springs Mm. stiltsville house and it was amazing aside from the fact that one guy with no shirt had been there for 21 days uh, to 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 stay away from his wife, <laughs> and everyone was trying to figure out how they were going to get him back on land. Um, it was just you feel like uh, you're in the Bahamas, and and you're literally what, what would you say, Tom, a mile off the off the coast of Cuba's Cane? Uh, oh, oh no, yeah, about a mile. Yeah, and it's just it's amazing, and uh, it's got everything to it. Uh, you know, prohibition. Gambling at one point uh, in the '60s, uh, a yacht ran aground and they just turned it into a casino. Well, no, they turned it into a whorehouse for a while. But <laughs> <laughs> so it started with that. <laughs> so, so when to, when Tom talks about Stillsville, I want uh, everyone to have a little background. So, Tom, do me a favor, go a little more into the history of Stillsville, and then talk about, uh, in particular, your family's involvement. I mean, you, you hit it pretty well. I, what had happened was a big boat or a barge or something had run up on the shallows out there, just south of uh, Key Biscayne, and so during Prohibition, they started, uh, you know, serving booze out there, and I think they called it the Quarter Deck Club or something. And then it became a place where there were also women of ill repute out there, and it was really a big party. And uh, then it, it just sort of grew from there. People started putting in structures with pilings and building their own little fun out there. And, you know, this is before it was Biscayne National Park, which it is now. Uh, and we were fortunate to have a house out there, which uh, I can tell you during high school, that was a lot of fun. What what are some of the stories that you can tell? Can tell none. (laughs) Sorry, podcast over. (laughs) 
No, I'll tell you a good one was, uh, you know, my, my, my father enjoyed a good party, you know, and his buddies all enjoyed a good party, and, and we certainly know how to throw a good party. So uh, we decided to have, I guess I can use the name because it was his legitimate band name, Big Dick and the Extenders. Oh, I didn't know that was your dad's From, no, band. No, no, not my dad. This was a band that we had, had found down in the Keys the week he started playing there. And we became very good friends with Jack Snipes, who was the lead of that band. I've seen that band. They're good. <laughs> they are good. They were good. Jack's passed away since. But we've hired Jack a couple of times. But this one party in particular, we hired Jack to come out to Stiltsville, which means we got to transport him, all his equipment, and everything else out to Stiltsville. And this was during that zero tolerance time on drugs. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, Jack was a walking liability when it came to that policy. <laughs> but we got, so we, we, it was just word of mouth. You know, we, it was just me and my buddies. At that point, we were in college uh, or maybe even early, no, college. And uh, all my high school buddies and I, we got together party. We drug out field generators to power the band. And, I mean, this thing grew beyond our wild imaginations because, I mean, I, for instance, I'm at, like, Milam's buying beer to get to the boat to go out to this party. And there's, like, 30 people in line in front of me all talking about my party. And I don't know a single one. <laughs> Where was my invitation? Yeah, well, I didn't even know you, man. But, you know, this, oh, well, this party turned into something. I, it, just beyond, it was beyond incredible. In fact, at one point in time, and I don't know how this occurred, Downtown Julie Brown. Anybody remember oh, that? Oh yeah, the, the oh, VJ. She Absolutely. she shows up at the party. Oh, that's too funny. And everybody just ignored her because we were having too much fun. <laughs> I mean, there were there were literally hundreds of people. They were on top of the roof. They were all over the house. They were surrounded by boats. I mean, it was a hell of a party. My father had more fun than anybody else at that party. Oh man, I miss 1980s Miami like you don't know. That's, that sounds great. So I'm going to end this segment because again, it went well, so we don't have to redo it. And when we come back, I think this is a great starting off point to uh, changes that Tom's seen for better or worse in Miami uh, with, with Tom's own particular spin on it and also what his family would think if they saw these things today. So uh, we will talk to you in segment three. Welcome back to Just a Gringo from Miami, episode eight, segment three. And we are with the, until this podcast airs, the very preeminent Tom Pennycamp, comma, Gringo Squared. Um, we are sure that after this podcast airs, um, he will be filing for public assistance. Or just leaving town. Or just leaving town until yeah. things blow over. <laughs> so, I guess after the uh, Stiltsville party story, that's a good uh, jumping off point for how, how you've seen Miami change over the years, for better or worse. Maybe what you think your grandparents and parents would uh, think about some of these changes, what you think about these changes. Uh, any any uh, humorous stories that come to mind? Yeah, you know, it's it's. So I was born in '64, and uh, you know, Miami has drastically changed just from my perspective. I mean, there was nothing but farmland east of Galloway Road. 
I mean, period, the end. It was nothing but farmland. It was mainly uh, cucumbers. And, uh, you know, I remember when the courthouse in downtown Miami was by far the tallest building in downtown Miami. Now you can't even see it. Um, I was born and lived for my first year in uh, a house that my father had bought, and it was at 15th Road and South Miami Avenue. That is right in the heart of Brickell. And uh, my father then moved into my mother's family home with me, but he continued using that property as his uh, office building and uh, actually acquired some property there adjacent to it. And one of them was an Edie Brickle of Brickle Avenue, Edie Brickle two-story Dade County Pine home, which we called the Tree Fort. And I lived there for a while and just... Just that spot kind of sums it all up. So when I lived in that tree fort, rented it from my father for more money than I was making, uh, that whole street, this is, this is basically Brickell Avenue, that's South Miami Avenue, was nothing but single family residences with beautiful green yards. And I, it, it, I, it just was a, it was a residential neighborhood. That's unbelievable. And now it is an absolute condo canyon of, you know, financial institutions and whatever it is. But, you know, that and then later on in life, uh, this was now in the early 90s, I was living there and it was desolate. I mean, it was desolate. Uh, it, it was transitioning. And I mean, I was, so I was living there, I was renting there. I mean, I could have taken off my clothes on a Saturday and run down the street for a mile and nobody would have ever seen me. I feel like that's an actual story. Well, it might happen, but it, that would have been a little later in the evening. Uh, but, you know, there's just been, uh, there's been a lot of changes. But, you know, you ask me how my parents would feel about it or my grandparents. You know what? They would embrace it. Uh, I have to be honest with you. My parents may not be, you know, like other uh, old Floridians. But, you know, my father's uh, business partner was Alex Soto. And he comes from a prominent uh, Cuban family. They came over in the 50s for legitimate political reasons. And, you know, my father sought him out uh, as, a, uh, as a business partner. And for, for exactly that reason, the, 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 the Miami was changing. You know, Latin, Spanish was important. The Latin population, very important. Uh, and I have nothing but respect for the, the Cuban diaspora and the people that came over at that time frame. They are magnificent, hardworking, smart people. They're, they are the ultimate capitalist. Uh, you know, I think that Marialitos, that period of time, was a very unfortunate episode for Miami. I think it, it, it uh, poisoned a lot of people uh, in their minds, uh, and it's difficult. And we're still absorbing that kind of thing. Um, but I think my parents, I know my parents, uh, loved the change. They loved the uh, Latin American influence, uh, and so do I. I mean, I've lived in Honduras. I've lived in Mexico. Uh, I speak Spanish. I grew up eating uh, Honduran food, actually, and that's a more interesting story as all that happened. But with yeah. all that being said, can I intervene? I would like to rename your nickname from Kringo Squared to the new Mister Three Hundred Five, not Pitbull, <laughs> but. <laughs> well, you know, I'm on board because I'll, I'll nominate anyone but Pitbull. Oh, <laughs> come on! See, I like Pitbull. <laughs> 
I listened to that episode. I disagreed with that episode. I think Pitbull does a lot of great things for his community. I agree with you, but with everything you're saying, you might have earned the 305 title. Well, I don't know, but I'll, keep I'll going. Let's see. Let's see. Well, let's let's let Tom be the swing vote as long as he votes the right way. <laughs> Pit Pitbull or Udonis Haslam? Oh, Pitbull. Oh, okay. I agree. With but Dexter, you. see, I thought Dexter was a great suggestion, even though he's fictional. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know what? Forget you got his Haslam. I agree. Dexter is Mr. 305. But I still have an issue with him putting the bodies at the bottom of Biscayne Bay when Biscayne Bay is like seven feet deep. Um, but you know what? That's also so Miami. You know, lack of planning. Um, All right, back on track. So back on track. So I'll, I'll jump in, Tom. So it's... I, I grew up and I had a lot of friends who either um, were very young when they came here from Cuba or mostly their parents came here from Cuba. And that really had a very big impression on me, uh, formulated, you know, my worldview, uh, my politics, uh, and also, I never viewed, uh, you know, Hispanics, especially Cubans, as any kind of, uh, you know, minority or let alone an oppressed minority because they're just so successful and so hardworking. And, uh, and I really love living in Miami, largely in part because you have what I think is the perfect mix of you have U.S. infrastructure so stuff actually works most of the time. But you have just this energy and entrepreneurialism and uh, sort of... Sexy. Miami, yeah, Miami sexy, is sexy. And sexy and gorgeous women. It's so funny. I'll watch a movie and, or a TV show and everyone's making such a big deal out of like the latest actress. And I'll be like, I, I see 50 better looking women just walking to get lunch. So... Yeah, um, it's 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 really been a, a great blend, and, and the different waves of people, you know, the Venezuelans, the Brazilians, and that's always sort of rescued Miami from uh, being in a slump for any extended period of time. Because you get that next wave of the best and brightest, uh, li you know, leaving you know leaving um, that country. Like Chavez's loss is our game. Castro's loss is our game. You know, they just, uh, you know, they just elected, you know, someone who hopefully will be good for Colombia. But if they're not, all those people are going to come here and it's going to be our game. Obviously, I'm rooting for Colombia to be OK. So um, what else have you seen change about uh, Miami? Uh, really, that, the, the major thing, I, you know, when I graduated from high school, right, uh, I went to Columbus High School. And, uh, you know, at that point in time, Columbus was probably 10% uh, Latin, mainly Cuban, and 90%, you know, uh, Gringo, if you will. But, you know, it was weird because all, really all of my high school friends uh, left Miami. They, they just left. They, they didn't, uh, they didn't get it. They didn't get the, the Latin influence. They, 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 and I feel bad for them. I really do. None of them now speak Spanish. None of them. Oh, I don't, oh I, don't, I don't feel bad for them because... Now they're in houses that all look alike. 
<laughs> with mailboxes that are all the same, eating in chain restaurants. Yeah. You know, you self-select. And the rest of us are left here where it's awesome. And, uh, you know, we, we have like almost this uh, uh, expat slash gone native slash just we get it. And it's, and it's our own special thing. And uh, what I noticed was the final straw was Hurricane Andrew. Anyone who had an opportunity to sell their yeah. house for the insurance money, yeah. that that was like the final migration. And it was like, bye bye. Yeah. yeah, you know, absolutely. And you're right. You go to you go up to Stewart. You go up to West Palm, where they all went. You know, and it's very homogenous and very boring. Oh, I'm even talking like. Uh, you know, uh, certain sections of uh, West Broward, you know, yeah. you really don't have yeah, to... You're going to say that. <laughs> yeah, Jeff, Jeffrey's going to defend West Broward till the end. No, I defend West Broward. Miami's a much cooler city than West Broward any day, Ron. You know that. So, I, I listen, one man's heaven is another man's hell. I have a very good friend. He, he listens to this podcast. He'll know what I'm talking about. He loves it. He loves going into his gated community. He loves uh, going into his house. It looks just like his name. Yeah. <laughs> no, Chili's, the El Presidente Margarita. Don't dump on Chili's. Uh, but, you know, Olive Garden for, for Italian, that, that's that got to be, you know, even though the breadsticks are okay. But, you know, um, it's, it's, it's just night and day. So, Tom, I'm going to ask you about one aspect of Miami that has changed, I think, for the worse. What do you think about the douche factor? The, the, the guy who comes down here uh, from the Northeast and, uh, you know, does a short-term rental on a Lamborghini he can't afford and, like, maybe hangs out at the, at the Madrian and hits on, you know, uh, Russian women that are, like, 30 years younger than him. Uh, do you like that change in Miami? You know, I... I because I grew up in Coral Gables, I really do not experience that. I, I, I you know, Coral Gables is its own universe. Like, right. if you grew up in North Miami Beach, we're not going to know each other. You grew up in Coral Gables, Pinecrest, or whatever. We know each other. Right. Okay, period. The right. End. Miami Beach. The only reason I would ever, I ever, even to this day, step foot on Miami Beach is to go to Joe's. Okay. Period. That's it. I don't go anywhere else on Miami Beach. So yeah, that, all the most of that happens there. It doesn't happen in Coral Gables. So I'm self insulated. That's true. You go to a restaurant in Coral Gables, and it's 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 ninety nine percent non tourist, and that's probably why Coral Gables has the most enduring, great, fine restaurant scene. You know, since I'm old enough to afford to choose choose my own restaurant, and uh, that that is true now. You know, I live in, I live in Miami Shores, which is also very insulated. It's its own small town inside of a big city. But I driving from there to the office, I mean, you know, uh, the the orange Lamborghinis, the matte purple Rolls Royce SUVs, yeah, the, uh, the Papi Chulos of Miami, <laughs> absolutely. So, two wheelers, Ron. Come on. I'm sorry. What? You forgot the three-wheelers, your new favorite. Oh, yeah, the three-wheelers. The slingshot thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right. Well, I, I, I think a good way to wrap this up is, Tom, you're, you're involved in a lot of uh, great work. 
uh, you know, building on your family's work and some of your own things. Uh, you want to talk about some of the initiatives that you've got going on with uh, Penny Camp Park? Yeah, th- thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited about one we just introduced. So I was, I'm privileged to have been asked to serve on what's known as a, a citizen support organization, or a CSO for short. And most of the larger state parks, of which Penny Camp Park is probably the largest, uh, most popular of all the state parks. But anyway, for whatever reason, it did not have a CSO until uh, two years ago. And I was asked to be on the founding uh, board of this citizen support organization. And our purpose is to increase membership in the CSO, raise funds, and use them for projects to help the park become even better. Because, you know, state funds are limited uh, and they really need the support to make it the best experience for people that are going to visit our parks. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about John? Penny Camp Park, because some of them might not know. Yeah, so uh, uh, Penny Camp Park, as it's known shorthanded, is the nation's first underwater park. It is a park dedicated to the preserving uh, our coral reefs. Florida is the only place in the United States of America that has a coral reef uh, barrier reef. Okay, it is, and it extends or it extended at one point in time from basically Key West all the way up to, uh, I think, Jupiter. Um, and it, <laughs> people were actually, this is just it makes you sick to your stomach, they were actually dynamiting our reefs in wow. order to sell the coral to tourists. Now, I mean, that is just, today you, you would just be blown away that anybody could be that stupid. But at that point in time, it was perfectly acceptable. So. That was one of the reasons why uh, Penny Camp Park was formed, was to protect at least that, as much of the reef as they could. And uh, they did, yeah, yeah. So I, so I could just, just add on to oh, this. The, 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 go ahead, and I want to talk about the project. Um, just to add on to this, I could tell you as a kid, not knowing who Penny Camp was or anything like that, taking field trips to Penny Camp Park and uh, just... Uh, being blown away, uh, you don't even have to go in the water. Um, the mangroves and just seeing things like fiddler crabs for the first time. And uh, Jen, as you know, I mean, we lived in New York until just before I was five. I'd never seen anything like that. And then to go back again as a teenager, it was cool to snorkel around. Then to go back again as an adult and actually snorkel and it was the first time I'd seen an underwater statue, that uh, Jesus statue. What, what's the story behind that Jesus statue? So this this statue was donated by, like a, I don't know if he was French or Italian. I, I mean, I used to know the story, but it was sort of given to the United States. And they didn't know what to do with it. Like nobody could figure out what to do with this thing. And it bounced around all over the place. And it finally, uh, somebody came up with really what turned out to be a brilliant idea. Let's drop it underwater. Because this thing was enormous, right, and heavy. Anyway, so they dropped it in uh, Grecian Rocks, which is a beautiful coral reef out in the park, and it has become like the iconic picture of Penny Camp Park. It is the symbol of the park. It's Jesus raising his hands to the heavens, surrounded by coral and underwater. It's it's pretty. It's beautiful, especially when when the light hits it a certain way at yeah. a certain time of day. It's 
it's really, it really is. It's, it's spectacular. So talk about some of the initiatives you have going on. Yeah, so with the CSO, we've gotten some really cool projects off the ground. And uh, our latest, I think, is really the most exciting thing, which is the underwater coral cam. And I highly recommend that anybody that's listening to this goes to this link on YouTube before it becomes a membership-only thing. Right now, it's open to the public. Go to, on YouTube to Friends of John Pennycamp, and it'll come right up. It is a live feed from one of the reefs out at the park, and uh, it, is, it is mesmerizing. It is, um, yeah, and it's almost like meditative. You turn this thing on, and you just... You can't stop watching it because you just are waiting for the next fish to swim into the camera. There's a guy out there. If you look, if you look in the uh, the comments below it, or the there's a some guy who's literally cataloging all of the fish that appear in the camera, along with their number of appearances, the date of their appearances, their scientific name. I mean, I don't know who this guy is, but he needs to get another job. <laughs> Well, I, I'll tell you how I use it, Tom. It was just launched uh, a few weeks ago. Saturday. Yeah, Saturday uh, a week ago. And uh, so Tom turned me on to it. I actually found it on YouTube through Penny Camp Carl Cam. There's another way you can find it. And I have a, a flat screen TV over the fireplace, and I just turned it on to that. And it was our living backdrop while we were having dinner, and it was just great. Um, you know, it's, it's the seabed of, of grass and then coral and then just all these different fish swim by and the lighting changes, you know, every 15 minutes or so as the angle of the sun changes. And it, so if you just have a, a TV, rather than just being a black screen, you could just um, fire up YouTube and uh, have that as, as uh, living art. And, and it was great. Yeah, it's, it's really cool, and we're going to expand on that. They're, they're going to attach uh, all kinds of instrumentation to this thing, you know, water clarity, salinity, temperature, wave height. They're going to put a camera uh, above water there, too. For, and it's, it's really useful as well for, let's say, you run a dive operation. You can just tune into that camera and get a real quick idea of what water clarity is, roughness, that type of thing. So and it'll be great for school projects where they have live data on all this stuff and do, you know, experiments and whatnot so very exciting we're gonna put more cameras around too as we raise more funds and as a as a boater who loves to swim around just to know the surf temperature is is great and also you could tell uh you know is it storming there is it is it sunny um how if i want to donate to to penny camp park how would i do that yeah so there's a website friends of uh john penny camp coral reef state park which is the it's the citizen support organization. So it's name, it's familiar name, is Friends of John Pennycamp. And uh, you can join, I, I don't remember what membership is, it's like $35 or something. But yeah, it's a great cause to support. Um, and that camera also, when you walk into the park, see the park is 65,000 acres above wow. and below sea level. Uh, you know, uh, so a majority of the park is actually underwater. So it is very difficult that's its unique challenge is to engage visitors with the with what the park really is. It's one thing to go out to the mangroves and look at crabs. Cool, but it's not as cool as getting on the glass bottom boat and going out there and seeing, you know, giant Goliath groupers and tarpons and sharks and lobster and all. I mean that's that's cool. So what they've done at the visitor center, we now have a big TV there 
So when, you know, there's almost a million visitors a year to the park, and I think it's like six to a million. And uh, they will be greeted by the live feed. So they immediately get engaged. And I describe it as like it's a handshake when you walk in the door. You know, hey, welcome to the park. This is what we're about. Come in and take a look. And uh, people can sign up right there to donate with a QR code and all that. So I think this is going to be a great thing for the park, a great way to uh, uh, increase our resources to help the park along even further. Yeah, I think every school kid, especially, uh, you know, schools that aren't near the water, they should be mandated to go to Penny Kim Park because I'll give you the opposite of what happens. Both my kids multiple times were forced to go on field trips to one of the most unhappiest places on earth. That would be Marlins Park where the, where the Miami Marlins play because you can't sell a ticket to the Miami Marlins. So you have to force school kids who get no say to get onto a bus to go to Marlins Park. I would say that every kid who's ever been forced to go to Marlins Park should have gone to Pennycamp Park. They would have learned a lot more and they would not have been subjected to watching the Marlins play. But that's just my my side of it. Those Marlins fans, you're going to get some bad people. Yeah, all, all three of them. <laughs> all three of them. The, the only organization that has less fans than our podcast are the Marlins. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. So on that note, this was clearly our best podcast ever, partly because the bar was just so low. Well, I'm just going to take full credit for it. As you should, because you're the only difference. Before you, it was just Jennifer and I making each other laugh, and hopefully other people as well. So we really appreciate you being our first ever guest. Uh, that 45-page waiver that you signed... <laughs> is going to allow us to uh, publish this episode, and we really appreciate it. So, this is Just the Gringo from Miami, and his gringo sister. You are so slow, Jennifer. And the once preeminent, but now soon to be destitute, Thomas Pennycamp, because he was on our podcast. But at least uh, this was a great last hurrah, and he will resurface at some point. So thank you guys for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. I learned a lot and I will keep this information and spread the word. Thanks, Jen. Thank you. And uh, until episode nine, this is just a gringo from Miami.